Father, I thank you that you have redeemed us in Jesus, that he is our mediator, and that he is active even now as our prophet. So help these words become the authoritative words of that wonderful, gracious prophet who spoke so truly. So help us now in this moment to be attentive and to hear, hear him in his binding authority as no other authority, the one to whom we owe our allegiance, having been purchased by him. And so in the name of Christ we pray, amen, amen. Well, uh, it was 1992, it was August 14, and off the coast of Africa, there was a small tropical depression, and uh, only a couple of meteorologists at the National Hurricane Center noticed it. But eight days later, on August 14, this relatively small tropical depression had reached hurricane strength just eight days later. And by the 22nd of August, it was threatening to turn northward from the Caribbean. And it headed north right up to Florida. It was called Tropical Depression Andrew when it was first noticed, but we know it as Hurricane Andrew. Um, And it devastated Miami-Dade County in Florida and parts of Louisiana. Over 20,000 homes were destroyed by winds exceeding 160 miles per hour. A 17-foot storm surge 26 people died, and some 40 died indirectly because of the storm. 9,500 traffic signs were taken out, 3,300 miles of power lines, 3,000 water mains, 59 health facilities, 31 public schools, 32,000 acres of farmland, and 82,000 businesses. Now, Miami-Dade County formed a grand jury to find out what on earth, why are we not better prepared for these hurricanes? And they concluded, uh, quote, a major failing of all Floridians has been our apparent inability to learn and retain the important lessons previous hurricanes should have taught us. That was in their report. If you've ever been near a hurricane, and uh, I, Marianne and I were living in, in Little Aubrey, or we were living in Orlando. I was finishing up my seminary years. I had never been to a Home Depot before where the big whiteboard there, and they're tracking the hurricane. Never seen that before in my life and didn't know how seriously to take it. By the time I thought of it, I grew up in Southern California, um, by the time I thought about, well, maybe I should prepare Uh, So I went to the store, and the only thing that was left was cookies and Gatorade. (laughs) 
So I took my little humble cookies and Gatorade, and I remember just eating the cookies and drinking my Gatorade watching the news. So I would have been really in bad shape, uh, I'm sure. It's funny, though, when there is a storm, we've had hurricanes uh, come close to Hawaii the last 10 years. We, uh, it's kind of nice. It's a nice day like this. You look on the, the radar and you see that only 200 miles away is a pretty big storm, but it doesn't seem, so it doesn't, doesn't seem real, does it? Because everything is so nice and sunny. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus uses this storm imagery at the conclusion of his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, every sermon is supposed to have application. Did you know that? Uh, that's hopefully some of the best part of the sermon beyond the exposition and explaining the text. The preacher is supposed to apply the text, right? It's so uh, really good preachers are able to think through, what, how does this apply to a teenager, a college student, uh, a single mom, a retiree. So you think about how this would work, how this would apply. So Jesus uh, apparently is aware that people hear him, perhaps they hear him politely. Uh, but he's also aware that some who listened to him had no real interest in applying what he said. So he applies it. Perhaps you've listened to a sermon and you've thought to yourself as the preacher tries to apply it you think whoa well that's great because it really doesn't apply to me and you're elbowing the person next to you maybe you feel a bit of relief because uh, you get a pass because the the text doesn't apply to you well it's very hard to read the sermon on the mount and elbow anybody else the sermon on the mount starts in matthew 5 and it goes through to Matthew 7. Now, Luke has his own version of it, and it's a bit different. And so scholars have concluded that Jesus taught the sermon, this sermon multiple times and to different audiences. And so Matthew's is really the most famous of them, most noted. And he basically concludes this, well, he, he concludes this sermon and essentially says, you better apply this sermon or your life will be taken out by a great storm. Now, that's like a prophet would talk. That's, that's how prophets talked. Prophets would tell recalcitrant people, hearts that are hard, hearts that are indifferent, prophets would tell people that these are not just mere words. Now, we are inundated with words, blogs, email, texts, special news alert. We, we have words down. We got them down. These are not mere words. These are life or death words. Uh, in medieval days, uh, a, a medieval knight would take his armor-plated glove. And if there had been some injustice somewhere, he would walk into town or walk into the village and he would approach the person who had committed the crime 
and he'd throw down the gauntlet. So they called it. The gauntlet is a word referring to a challenge to a duel. It's time to deal with this. And so he'd throw down that glove. That's where that comes from. So Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet. Now, uh, there's lots of prophets, it would-be prophets, who've claimed to be prophets. There's a lot of people who claim to be authorities and experts. And Jesus throws down the gauntlet and says, you can count on this. You either listen to me, or if you don't, a storm is coming. And your life will be taken out if you don't listen to me and apply these words. How about that? Now, it would probably be most fair to you today to recount the Sermon on the Mount. I would just start a, a message on the, at the end of the sermon. But I wanted to give you that sense of what it was like to be around Jesus the prophet. Now, the sermon is, is well organized. Actually, it's, it's topically or, organized. Matthew 5, we have the Beatitudes, the, the heart condition of those who have been impacted by the gospel. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. Those are the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Jesus begins to describe people in the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom. What are they like? They're like salt, and they are like light, beginning of Matthew 5. Then the second section is much larger, much larger. And it's, uh, it goes from Matthew 5, 17 to Matthew 7, 12. And it's Jesus and his disciples and his teaching of all those who would follow him and the moral law. So Jesus is the second Moses who has uh, ascended this mountain. And he is now delivering a perfect interpretation of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments that apply to all cultures and all time. So the, the Pharisees and the scribes, in a clever way, figured out how to look like they had conformed to the Ten Commandments, when in fact they were just looking for an external conformity and their hearts were not in it at all. So Jesus presents a contrast, and he's, it's, it's very easy to see this. You have heard it said, you have heard it said, your scribes and Pharisees are talking this way, uh, but I tell you this. You have heard it said, but I tell you this, right? So, so he goes through systematically uh, the, ten, the Ten Commandments. Now, he deals with personal piety versus external formalism, which tends to be with religious people, sort of external stuff. What is inward and genuine versus what is outward and phony. Then the final section is essentially this. Well, what does it look like to listen? That's the final section of the sermon. What does it look like to listen? Who is choosing correctly? Who is listening? Uh, and he describes it as a narrow way that leads to destruction and a broad way that leads excuse me, a narrow way that leads to everlasting life and a broad way that leads to destru 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 destruction. So here's the thought. The narrow way is like walking in a big field. There's no trail. There's no roads. It's just, and so imagine people just wandering in a large field. There's no particular way, place to go. Uh, 
You're just wandering in a big field. That's the way that's broad that leads to destruction. Going your own way would be another way of putting it. Jesus says narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. So this is like a a small mountain trail on the on the edge of a mountain that you you might want to keep keep steady and keep be careful and mindful how you're walking not the broad open field. He also then says there are true and false teachers and his people will be discerning and thoughtful they will know his words and they will be able to to contradict refute or just outright avoid false teachers. And then we finally have good and bad foundations. The good foundation is listening and applying, and the bad foundation is listening but having an indifference to the words of Jesus. So Jesus expects and demands that all believers are to live in terms of this message. Now, with no hands raised... Uh, no embarrassment here. If Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount and he says, look, your eternal destiny is dependent on this message, can you name five subjects from the Sermon on the Mount? Can you name three? Can you name two? That struck me as I prepared. I thought, you know, if this really is the Sermon of Sermons, We ought to know it better than we do. The sermon is Jesus as our prophet dealing with sanctification. And we've looked at the idea that Jesus is our prophet who awakens us to our true condition. He's the prophet who can cut through all human resistance. He can speak with what theologians call effectual calling. Turn your heart of stone, Ezekiel 36, to a heart of flesh. That's the prophet Jesus using the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This is that remarkable moment when we who hate the authority of God by nature are turned and given a new nature and we love the one who's calling us and he's calling us to repent and believe and his voice is sweet to us. Paul in Ephesians 3, 4 says that he made us alive. All right, that's all right. So now we have Jesus as our prophet for sanctification. The gospel is not a relaxation of the demands of God's holy law. It's a further application of it. So, we who are perhaps content with externalism and formalism, when we hear the prophet Jesus speaking to our need to grow in sanctification, our heart is Our heart is under conviction because we see what he's saying and it's true and it's right and it's righteous and it's holy and it's good. And, oh, Jesus, help me fight for I've been indifferent to your goodness. You see, that's the fight of sanctification. We stumble forward. We're dealing with the pollution of sin in us. And remarkably, it is a synergistic process. That means two parties are at work. You... And the Holy Spirit, God is at work in us, actively moving us, growing us, helping us walk out of darkness, out of the life of the flesh. This is all good stuff. Holiness, by the way, is freedom. 
Holiness is not a burden on your shoulder. It is freedom. So this is a call to manifest the characteristics of one who has rightly heard. It's a warning that is terrifying. We've all heard of people. Some of these stories uh, I looked up, and I don't know if they're all that true, but um, there, inevitably there are people who ride out the storm. Have we not heard about them? They know a big storm is coming, and they decide to stay in their house, right? <clears throat> but even the warning of a hurricane doesn't cause people to change. Well, because of Christ's infinite love for his sheep, he has given us these final words. Now the text itself. Everyone is building a foundation with their life. Everyone's doing it. We're either responding to our own devices, our own wisdom, or we are responding to the wisdom of Jesus. We are either bearing fruit or we are not. We are choosing the narrow way or the broad way. We are listening to Jesus when it comes to our relationships and we are settling disputes. We are getting the log out of our own eye. We are forgiving our debtors. We are turning the other cheek. We are forbearing with evil. We are praying to our Father who is in heaven who, in secret. We are not anxious for our life and we are not laying up treasures on this earth but in heaven. A sample of what it looks like to listen to Jesus. Everyone is laying a foundation with their life based on listening and doing or listening and not doing. Secondly, every house will face the coming storm. The coming storm is not afflictions and difficulties. The coming storm is the judgment of God. The truth of the, house's, the house and its condition will not be known until the storm comes. The, the house's foundation, the house on the outside, looks fine. The person may be well-adjusted, have nice self-esteem, live in a nice house, drive a nice car, have good health insurance, have a nice retirement plan. They might have a wonderful, apparently a good life. Jesus is saying the storm is coming. The believer, however, through listening to the Sermon on the Mount, has already done something remarkable. They have judged themselves. They have turned away from blaming their circumstances, blaming others, blaming their DNA, blaming their parents, and they have turned and they've heard the perfect holy law of God, and the believer has done something remarkable. They have turned upon themselves and they have looked inside, and they find that they are spiritually bankrupt. They are poor in spirit. If they were near Jesus, they would feel like they could not approach him. They would not be worthy of him. They could not ever claim to have salvation. They are so spiritually bankrupt. And it's to these that Jesus first speaks in his message, Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are you. It doesn't feel this way. Blessed are you. You're so close to the kingdom. Blessed are you for your, you who are poor in spirit, who acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. 
For you is the kingdom of heaven. We go on to the second beatitude. We've turned on ourselves. We've begun to judge ourselves. Blessed are those who mourn. This means those who have turned and become their own self-accusers. Now, this, this feels awful. This sounds awful. This, how could this lead to salvation? A person turning, saying, I and I alone am responsible for my sin, and I am mourning my condition. I'm aware of my spiritual poverty. I am stopping this sense of pointing outward. I and I alone own this. And Jesus says, Blessed are you when this is your experience, for you shall be comforted. In what way is a spiritual comfort? God receives those who mourn. He's close to those who are broken in spirit. He heals them through the gospel. And then to the meek who feel like they're just going to run over in this world, the world, the world, the world, uh, a world for the powerful. The world is a world for those who can take the world by the tail. The world, the, the movers and the shakers. How can the if they feel this, they, they feel as if they're going to get run over by the world and they will be forgotten because they have this meekness. And Jesus says, oh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meaning that the meek have submitted themselves to the authority of another. So it is in the gospel we first judge ourselves and this judging is coming from listening to Jesus. And what we're doing, whether or not we understand it or not, and we need preachers to assure us that we have understood things correctly, as we are listening, a house is being built on rock. A house is being built on rock, and it will withstand the coming judgment. And so, the church's message to the world is a gracious, loving warning. There's a storm off of Africa, and it's not going away. It will not just dissipate. Biblically speaking, uh, the world is about at 11.30 p.m. by way of a clock. This age is continuing on and it will end in a catastrophic surprise ending that no one will know. Judgment Day will be upon all those who do not believe, we who believe have been judged already. And so this is our warning. This is our gracious warning. This is the, what's needed to wake us up. And so our lives demonstrate whether we are truly listening to the final prophet. And I will tell you, my little, uh, my, uh, my two cents here, folks, We, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to how we treat one another, I'm not referring to anyone here specifically, 
how we engage each other, how we handle disputes, how we handle disagreements, we are not at the feet of Jesus. We are not removing the log in our own eye. We are not concerned about how we speak. It is as if the church in general, and this is just, we have not wrestled with the words of Jesus. We know his words faintly. We know his words sort of. And I would recommend to you for summer reading that you would take the Sermon on the Mount and read it slowly and carefully. Apply it to your heart. Be glad to interact with you at any time. We are not listening to Jesus in many, many ways. In our relationships, our heart, our use of money, our interests, our passions. Jesus is our prophet. He is the voice in this room. He is the powerful one with the binding authority from heaven. He is active now as our mediator, fulfilling three particular offices, prophet, priest, and king. He's active in his church using those offices. And today, he is our faithful prophet. No one faced a storm like Jesus, though. No one encountered the judgment of God like Jesus on that cross. Isaiah tells us that he was wounded, brought under that awful day because of our transgressions. He was despised and he was rejected. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And he was treated as if he didn't have a real foundation. Treated as if God had abandoned him and he had not been faithful. Of course, his faithfulness marked his life. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is, that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he received that storm of judgment for all who believe that you would be justified by his remarkable grace, declared righteous, declared wearing the righteousness of Jesus. And that judgment day for you has taken place on the cross. And so let us now be those who are distinguished by listening to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the word of God and for Jesus, our prophet, in our midst. Pierce through, Lord, our indifference, and Father, help us to lean upon the remarkable wisdom of Jesus in this passage. Thank you for warning us. Thank you for telling us. Thank you for awakening our souls. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Wow, it's been a delight, and now we have an opportunity to hear from our prophet Jesus, who declares to us that through his work on the cross, we can enjoy 
a meal with him. And so let's stand and uh, let's consider what it is that we believe. This is uh, nicknamed really the, the Apostles' Creed, developed sometime in the 5th century A.D. It is a summary of the Christian faith. It's a good outline of the Christian faith. And so let us affirm what it is that we believe. So Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Great is the mystery of faith. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. According to his commandment, Christ, the bread of life, as Paul said to the Corinthians, so I say to you, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed.